Good afternoon and thanks for joining today. This is Greg Lois and we are talking about one of my favorite and one of our funnest topics in New York workers' compensation and that is fraud. So thanks for joining us today. I'm very excited to get into this topic and explore it with you and tell you some funny stories and take a look at some case law. So today we're going to talk about the jurisdictional standards of proof in a fraud case. I'm going to talk about some case decisions and because I like to brag, I'm going to talk primarily about case level decisions that my office has obtained in the last couple months or the last couple years. And my goal here today is to make this as practical and as useful to you as possible. So I really want to give you some practical advice and some takeaways, and particularly how we use surveillance and how we raise fraud in a New York workers' compensation case. That's really uh, my, my goal. Now, the real thought here is we're trying to avoid obtaining absurd results and our entire New York workers' compensation system is designed uh, to really reward claimants and give them the benefit of the doubt. So raising fraud and pursuing a fraud defense when one is available to us, that's really our best way uh, to gain control of some of these out of control cases. Now, this is a live webinar and I do want to answer any questions you have. We have a lot of people, as I can see in our webinar room right now. So please type in your questions and there is a question box. Uh, I'm also going to tell you this, it's, it's really been uh, a very busy season for us here at Lois Law Firm and I've been talking to a lot of our clients in the last couple months and we're really starting to see the result of the great resignation on some of our clients and some of our, our risk professionals and it seems like so many of my clients and so many of you are struggling with training a new workforce. We've you know, uh, as people have sort of aged out or moved out of workers' compensation on the adjustment or risk professional side, and we've seen so much turnover on the, on the, in the risk industry, we just have a lot of new people coming into our industry now. And I know that one of our challenges is going to be training those people. Well, I just want to let you guys know and let you know here first that we are putting together and finishing up a online course that we've developed and it's going to take about five hours of viewing time but it is video with handouts and it is designed to train uh, a judge of compensation an attorney or a risk professional really from beginning to end really soup to nuts uh, give them an overview of workers compensation in New York with a lot of specific New York information uh, that I think would be useful for anyone who's coming at this new and, and this is really in response to our clients who are telling us hey Greg I've got so many new adjusters that I'm trying to train up or so many new risk professionals inside at, at the self-insureds and so we're really trying to put together a really good training material on New York workers comp law and Right now, uh, we're planning on offering it as a video on demand, and we're going to uh, be able to share with you some private links so that you can share that with your group. Um, I'm also willing to do it live so we can answer questions or do the video on demand with question sessions. So look forward in the next couple of weeks to emails from me uh, asking you to uh, take part in a survey as to how best to deliver this material uh, to maybe your people. The second thing I just want to say uh, about the great resignation and the impact we're all seeing is that there's no such thing anymore as a $14 or $15 an hour job, right? Uh, as uh, employers have done more to sort of lure people back to work, uh, we've seen wages go up and up and up. And right now, that's important for our, our employers to be doing that, to try to grab people and pull them back into the workplace, and I know we're doing that. But I think all of the risk professionals that are here in this webinar today should just take note. We're going to start to see that 
in higher exposures and higher settlement values. Because particularly in this jurisdiction that we're talking about today, in New York, your settlement exposure, your settlement value is really all based on the average weekly wage, of course, subject to maximums and minimums. But that maximum right now in New York is $1,063.05. That's a pretty high maximum. And really what we're looking at is the people in the $18 to $28 an hour range really going to drive up uh, that uh, that bottom line number at the end of the year. So I just want everybody to start to be thinking about that. And I think that's really the conversation that we need to be having. So that's uh, a little bit about what we're doing here. And again, um, anybody wants to give me any feedback about the training course we plan on offering, it is seven segments. It covers everything from what is workers' compensation insurance into the finer points of litigation and how you close a case. Um, and that will be available by the end of this week. Uh, so please feel free to give me any feedback you have about that. All right, let's dive into today's topic, which is uh, fraud in New York. And I want to start very quickly with just an overview of what is fraud. And then I want to dive into how it actually impacts our cases. I want to give you some case law examples, uh, ways in which we've employed a fraud defense or brought up fraud as a way to reduce exposure, and then start to talk to you about uh, what we see as uh, best actions or, or the best practices uh, for bringing out fraud and winning on fraud in your workers' comp cases. All right, so let's begin. So fraud is defined in the statute section 114A as any knowing attempt to secure a benefit that you know is fraudulent. So uh, what is a knowing attempt mean? It means that there has to be some mens rea, some uh, malice aforethought, some planning involved. It should not be just simply accidental. So what that really means is that we have to be very thoughtful about how is the person committing this fraud and what types of frauds are going to be considered uh, that which would cut off the claimant from benefit. Because under the fraud statute in New York, uh, the uh, claimant would be cut off from future money benefits if they're found to have committed fraud. And we all know once you stop the flow of money in a workers' compensation case, all of a sudden the claimant either wants to settle or they're done with medical treatment. Let's be frank about that. So the, uh, the fraud uh, determination is whether or not the claimant did something affirmative and something knowingly in order to obtain a benefit that they would otherwise not be entitled to. Now, what kind of actions could constitute fraud in New York? Well, the most obvious one is just false statements, right? Um, and we're really looking for something that was filed in court, not just something they said to the employer, maybe not something they said to a doctor, but something that's actually been written down and put into a, a document and then forms the base for the claimant obtaining a benefit. Well, the most common place that we see fraud committed is on the employee claim form. And this is really the first stop, the first place you should be looking for it. You know, the employee claim form has to be signed by the claimant and it has to say, what is the mechanism of injury? How'd you get hurt? And they also have to list out all the body parts that they allegedly uh, injured in the workers' compensation injury. So all of those things have to be present, and all of those things create an opportunity for the claimant commit affirmative fraud. You know, so often in a workers' compensation case, it starts as a thumb injury in 2019, but the, by the time you get to 2022, they've brought in the hand, the wrist, the arm, the shoulder, the low back, the left leg, uh, the eyes, there's a psychiatric claim thrown in, you know, the things just mushroom. And the way to control that is really to keep pointing back to that initial claim form where the claimant said, here's what I hurt in the initial injury, All right? All right, the next thing that could be constitute fraud would be omission of relevant facts, okay? And that includes testimony or any filed documents. And those, the filed documents, by the way, I'm looking through primarily are things that the claimant's actually signing, like that claim form. 
Of course, uh, the basic malingering that we see, exaggerating symptoms, that can form the basis of a fraud finding in New York as well, as well as concealing current work activity. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but even volunteer work activity, uh, things like, well, I'm, I'm too disabled to go to work, but I'm coaching my kids uh, soccer team, or I'm still volunteering at my church or temple or something, that would still constitute the type of work activity that would be uh, found to be uh, an act of concealment. Uh, any concealment of prior injuries, here again is where we hearken back to that employee claim form. On that form, the claimant has to list any prior injury to the same body part. If they fail to do that, that's a concealment of the prior injury. So many times we start looking through medical records and we see references to prior treatment or even surgeries to the same body parts uh, or uh, systems that now form the basis of this current workers' compensation case. So concealment of that, particularly concealment upon questioning, uh, that can also form a basis. So where your independent medical evaluator is asking the claimant about prior injuries and they fail to disclose those prior injuries, that will found to be a, uh, a, a fraud in New York. Now, what are the penalties? Well, the mandatory provision states that if the claimant is found to have committed fraud, they are disqualified from receiving compensation. Uh, and it's a compensation attributable to the fraud. So basically, if on a go-forward basis, after the fraud has been found, all the compensation uh, after that, meaning money compensation, I'm talking about temporary partial, temporary total, or any impairment, uh, finding would be forfeit. They're, they should not be entitled to that money. Now, this is an incredibly powerful thing because we all know, again, once you stop that flow of money payment, uh, the workers' compensation claim is likely to disappear. Next, the judge can also initiate discretionary penalties, one of, the, of which is future wage replacement. So not just current, but also future wage replacement benefits. And of course, the claimant can also be uh, required to pay back a penalty, which is all the money that was directly attributable to the fraud. Now, in my experience, I've, it's very rare for us to get the discretionary penalty of paying back the money that was attributable to the fraud, although it has happened. And in those cases, when you do get restitution, the interesting thing is even though the judge of compensation can order the repayment, order the penalty, in order to get the repayment, you actually have to go into a civil court. And oftentimes, we'll have to either garnish wages or to, or to put a sheriff's lien on a bank account to get the money back. Uh, this is a common question I get from clients, which is, hey, is Greg, is it possible to get restitution in New York? And the answer is yes, and we've absolutely done it, and particularly in egregious cases. I can remember a case uh, that my partner, Declan Gourley, handled in which the claimant uh, claimed she was too disabled from her job as a nurse, and we discovered that she was operating a restaurant. She had a, a relatively famous roadside restaurant uh, serving Caribbean jerk chicken. Uh, and, you know, we determined that although while she was out collecting temporary total disability, she was this relatively uh, well-to-do Caribbean jerk chicken chef and doing pretty well with the chicken business. Um, we were able to get uh, sheriff's liens and go after the proceeds of the business that she uh, also owned. So, you know, it is possible. It's not something to give up on. And the reason I'm mentioning this is not just because we're mean or mean-spirited. Uh, it's really because when you obtain a fraud finding against uh, one of your employees, it often has a strong deterrent effect on the other employees in that workplace who are maybe contemplating the same scam. 
And so it, it is important that you do um, uh, execute or you do attempt to execute your rights in order to obtain that recovery that you can make. Let's talk about a couple specific examples, a couple specific cases, and I'm only, again, because I'm vain, going to talk about cases and examples uh, where uh, my office was involved. So the first case, I'm not even going to say the name of this claimant. I, it's well beyond me. This is a case from 2020. Uh, the claimant alleged injury to his right shoulder in 2018. On that employee claim form, as I mentioned, is very important. They, they denied that they had prior injuries to the right shoulder. Uh, they also denied that specifically when asked to, by their surgeon, in fact, in the surgeon's notes, it said, it said specifically, no prior injuries to the right shoulder. And our doctor, uh, Mann, who was our defense medical examiner, our IME doctor, specifically asked any prior injuries to the same body part, again, denied that. Um, well, guess what? Uh, our client was intrepid and provided us with a claims index bureau uh, report. Uh, of course, these are should be, uh, I think, best practice in every case is please let's get a CIB index on people. Uh, a, a CIB index, if you're not sure what that is, it's really just a list of all the prior insurance claims uh, made by a specific person. And so when we went and we did that search, we kind of looked at their claims history. We discovered, wait a second, there's five prior claims uh, for injuries and two subsequent claims, all right? Uh, of course, uh, on the stand, the claimant could explain it all away, and she said things like, I don't remember, or that was minor, et cetera. Um, you know, and however, didn't matter. She was found to be a fraud, and the rights to benefits were taken away. Uh, the claimant's doctor in that case was Dr. Kiebeld and Dr. Wilson. And the reason I'm just throwing that out there is because we often see the same doctors who are getting fooled a lot. So we keep our eyes open. And the attorney here who obtained that result was Connor Weatherington. Next case, SRC versus construction company. Uh, names protected uh, to, to maintain some privacy. This case I think might still be open. This is an August 20, 2020 case. Uh, where there is a 2019 neck injury. Uh, the claimant, again, in their employee claim file, denied that they had prior injuries. And we asked them to execute HIPAA's uh, medical releases so that we could obtain and go search the record. Those HIPAA releases also say, do you have prior injuries to the same body? Please inform us where you got this prior medical treatment. And again, the claimant denied on that and still signed the HIPAAs and turned them over to us. Well, they also denied prior injuries to both their treating and the IME doctors, and our medical uh, canvas revealed that there were priors. What did we do? We used those HIPAA releases that they so nicely provided to us, and we subpoenaed those records. And what we found was that there was significant treatment to the same body part, the same neck injury. Um, in this case, we obtained both mandatory and discretionary penalties, uh, and uh, the claimant appealed it and said, this is not fair, you shouldn't make me pay this money back. And we went to the board panel, we made a legal argument, and we won. And that was uh, my partner, Tashia Razul, who runs our complex claims practice here. So uh, you can give her a ring, and she'll, I'm sure, be very happy to talk to you about this win in that fraud case. Um, here's another case, uh, Vasquez versus Scuffy. Uh, this is an interesting one because it really just shows you the lengths to which people will just lie, I guess. Um, uh, you know, this one is a, uh, a January 2019 decision. Um, this is a back injury going way back from 2013. 
In 2015, the carrier raised, hey, I think this guy's got another employment. He's working someplace else. Uh, we've, we've got, I, we have some proofs that can show that, hey, by the way, it looks like you're working in another auto body shop while you're collecting total disability from us. Turns out, though, he was working as a laborer in multiple landscaping businesses, okay? And when pressed, uh, they were actually able to obtain pay records that shows him. And, and we were able to show, hey, he's got multiple paychecks from multiple uh, different employers. The claimant, of course, could explain it all away, okay? He said, well, those people, there's other people working for them, and I'm just cashing the checks for them, and that's why my name is showing up on those checks, okay? Uh, nope, that's crazy. Uh, the board panel found that this was absolutely uh, a fraud. Uh, the claimant's doctor in that case was uh, Robert Conciatore, who, by the way, you've seen a lot of cases. And obviously, this is a doctor who's saying this claimant is totally and completely disabled, can't work because of his 2013 uh, neck injury. Meanwhile, the guy's doing heavy manual labor working for multiple landscape companies. Now, this one didn't come from my office. Um, I know the attorney on the other side was Kirk and Teff, but I don't know. Uh, who, you know, who the, uh, the defense IME was, et cetera, because it wasn't in the published decision. But this just really shows you the length. I mean, even when confronted with multiple paychecks from multiple places he's worked, he's still saying, oh, those are other people. I'm cashing checks for other people. And one, in one instance, he was saying he was cashing checks for his father who was working off the books. So really see this stuff uh, very prevalent and it really needs to be challenged. All right, uh, next, let's talk a little bit about surveillance as a basis for fraud. Um, we've talked so far in all of the examples I've given of the claimant entrapping themselves, right? They're just lying to their treating physician, they're lying to the IME doctor, and they're signing documents, primarily the C3 uh, employee claim form, uh, stating that they are either unable to work or they had a significant injury, uh, or, and primarily concealing or denying the presence of prior injuries, okay? So, you know, that's, that's something we see a lot. But the other place we catch fraud, and, and it's probably about two-thirds of the fraud cases that we're defending in this office, uh, is coming from covert surveillance. Um, covert surveillance, I think, is a great way of really putting someone to their proofs and testing their actual ability. So um, when we are going to present surveillance, I just want to talk to you about a couple of things and a couple of areas of law that we fleshed out. The first is, I always believe that you should put the surveillance agent on. Never, ever, ever turn over the report. Uh, my also, I'm going to talk in the next slide about my best practices, meaning getting a different surveillance agent for every single day. We'll get there. You know that your adversary, opposing counsel, and the claimant are always going to have the same defense to a covert fraud case in which you've captured them jumping on the trampoline or working somewhere. They're always going to say that was a good day and a bad day. And so you really need to be thoughtful about how you're going to defeat that argument that, that today was a good day or a bad day. You know, the, the typical thing we see from claimant's attorney is they, they, they put the, uh, we put the surveillance agent on the stand. He says, yep, I videotaped this guy. I didn't edit the video. It's the complete video. And here's what I saw. And it's all on the videotape, right? And they say, well, you didn't see him the day before and you didn't see him the day after. Isn't it possible the day after you saw him doing all of this terrible activity, uh, all this extensive activity, that he was just laying in bed in terrible pain, he could barely move? And your surveillance agent now can only say one thing, like, yeah, I guess so. How could I know? I didn't see him the second day. And that's really how they attack our surveillance. I want to talk in the next slide about how we defeat that. But the other thing I want to point out here is when you're putting a surveillance agent on the stand, always put the surveillance agent on the stand. Never turn over the surveillance report to your adversary. 
And the reason for that is the uh, agent's report will then become the basis of the cross-examination. And they will go after the surveillance agent for every single little nook and cranny in that surveillance report. Every time, every date, every place, um, any typo in that. And really what ends up happening is your surveillance agent no longer is testifying to the nature and extent of the claimant's activities that they observed in the video and just authenticating, yep, this is the complete video, I didn't edit it, here it is. Instead, now they're defending their own report and being cross-examined with it. And let's be frank, they're not great at being cross-examined on their own report. I mean, these are reports that might have been made a year prior, it might be 15 pages long, and they're being asked nuanced questions about it. The answer is we'd never want to turn that over, and so that's always been our practice. Well, we've actually made case law that says you don't have to turn that over. I'm putting up on the screen a number of cases that were decided uh, based on work our office did. Uh, two of my partners are up there, Christian Cisan and Tim Kane, getting decisions uh, from the Workers' Compensation Board that, yeah, that's correct. If you put the surveillance agent on the stand, you do not have to supply the surveillance report to any party. Uh, the other person who got one of those was our senior associate, Gene, Jeremy Janis. And the reason I'm saying this is oftentimes when you walk into a workers' comp court and you say, Judge, I've got this tremendous surveillance video and we're ready to take this to trial. And Judge, I'm going to put this agent on the stand and he's going to show you all the things that this claimant is really capable of doing. You'll discover the judge will almost always say, okay, we'll turn over the reports to everybody and then we'll have the claimant testify. Never do that. You should fight back against that tooth and nail. I really don't want to see that ever happening. All right, next. Let me give you a little general advice on covert surveillance, and, and this is something we've been telling clients for 10 years, and it's extraordinarily effective. Our advice on covert surveillance is always to use a different investigator on every single day that you um, are going to do covert surveillance. And the reason for that is that depending on how many days you can afford and how many days of surveillance we can obtain, it's, it's common that many of the days you put surveillance on the claimant, you don't catch them. Either by the time the surveillance agent got to their home or residence, they've already departed for the day, or maybe they just don't come outside all day. Maybe they're just sitting on the couch drinking beer and watching Judge Judy all day. You just really can't get any uh, evidence of what their actual real-life activity is like. Unfortunately, if you use the same surveillance agent for, let's say, three or five days of surveillance, that opens you up to the cross-examination that I just talked about earlier where the opposing counsel just says, how many days did you watch this uh, claimant? And, and the hapless uh, surveillance agent says, well, I was hired to watch him for five days. And so, well, did you watch him for five days? Yes, I did. Well, we only saw one day of video surveillance. Why is that? Well, the other days I didn't see him. I, I didn't see him come out of his residence. I didn't capture any activity. Oh, so isn't it possible those other days he was in such pain, all he could do was lay in bed and, and take his pain medication and barely move? Isn't that possible? And that really undermines your defense, and it really undermines the strength of whatever surveillance video you obtained on the one day you actually obtained that surveillance. So our advice is, if you're gonna do five days of surveillance, mandate or request from your vendor, your surveillance vendor, that they use five different agents for those five different days. And the reason for that is, the one or two days of surveillance that are actually fruitful and actually obtained surveillance that is useful for you, you can present the, the testimony of those two surveillance agents and present their videos in court. And the other agents who didn't capture any video or didn't obtain any uh, observations, 
you don't bring them into court. It's like they never happened, right? Uh, because it's me directing you to get the surveillance or requesting it, meaning your attorney, it's all privileged and confidential whether or not we ask for it or not. And so uh, it's, it's really never gonna come out and never gonna be presented in court. And for that reason, when you then present the surveillance video, present the agent, even if you had five days of surveillance, but only one day that actually saw the claimant, by presenting the surveillance agent who saw him the one day, now me, as your defense attorney, is gonna say something like this in my direct examination. Hello, wonderful surveillance agent. Uh, I requested you to uh, follow this claimant around, didn't I? Yeah, yes, you did. How many days were you assigned to watch them? And the answer is one day. And the, and the surveillance agent will repeat that. And I'll say, yeah, I watched them for one day. That was the only day I was hired for. Good, did you see them on that one day? Oh, yes, I did. Here's the video I've obtained and look at all these activities. So now you've undermined or taken away that good day, bad day sort of argument because on cross-examination, uh, claims attorney really got no place to go. There's, there's, they're not gonna be able to cross-examine them with their own report and they're not gonna be able to cross-examine them with all, all the other days that they missed and they didn't see this uh, claimant. And so you're really left with nothing and it really puts you in the strongest possible, most leveraged position because now that you've demonstrated the activity or the malingering uh, doesn't match what they're telling their, their treating physician or what their complaints are, now you're in a great position to undermine the claimant's credibility and move that case forward to closure. Uh, and that's generally speaking what a lot of cases are going to resolve. All right. I hope this was pretty useful. If you've joined us before, you know about my idea for uh, or my goal of different surveillance agent every day, but I hope you picked up new things if you haven't yet before. So let me come over here and open up my questions panel and see if we got any questions. This can't be possible with this many people. We don't have any questions yet popping up. All right, I am surprised. Here we go. Here we go. Mary says, not a question, she's just proud of herself. She's saying, Greg, we had sufficient video uh, surveillance for a fraud finding on a neck injury. Uh, okay, wait, then she's, oh, she's going on. Okay, this, this, is, this is coming in live, people. We filed the request twice with the New York State Fraud Unit, and that's where it trails off. Uh, and the, the fraud unit came back, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess the end, and didn't wanna prosecute, okay? And, and told us they didn't have staffing to prosecute. Okay, this is a common question in New York, but you know, uh, you can refer things to the Fraud Inspector General, uh, and they can go forward with it. But you can also do it yourself, right? I mean, you can, in, in the case of my, in my case, we didn't, uh, the one that I talked about, about the nurse who was operating the Jamaican uh, or the Caribbean uh, jerk chicken stand, uh, we didn't have to go to the Fraud Inspector General. We didn't really care about that, right? I got a judge to order the restitution in a workers' comp court. Now, of course, that judge can't uh, affect that. So, uh, you know, we went into a, uh, a civil court to have them uh, argue for the wage garnishment and for the accounts to be levied against, right? Now, what we couldn't do is you can't um, prosecute the claimant directly. And unfortunately, this is a common um, response, Mary, and I'm sorry to uh, tell you this and everybody else, you know, the Fraud Inspector General's office is not uh, when I say staff, they, they might have told you they're not staff, but you know they're not, uh, let's say, looking as strenuously into uh, private employers or private carriers' cases. In my observation, um, they seem to be going after state insurance fund uh, 
violations more strenuously than private employers or private carriers. So that just seems to be a thing. But it doesn't stop you from obtaining that fraud uh, in the workers' comp court. It doesn't stop you from then going and getting restitution. And again, you can still make the referral, right? And, and that's, I think, very useful for getting the message out to the other employers or, or the other employees in the same location. Like, hey guys, we're not, we're not taking this fraud stuff lying down. We're fighting back, right? All right. Uh, Corazon says, Greg, what about when the fraud comes after the claim was raised? Claimant didn't disclose when she suffered a fall and hit the same body part that she was being examined in the IME. I'm trying to parse that question a little bit. The, the fraud comes after the claim was raised. Claimant didn't disclose when she suffered a fall and hit the same body part that she was being examined in the IME. Well, I'm going to take that apart a little bit and try to understand what the question is. Uh, maybe you could fill me in a little bit more, but uh, yeah, most cases don't start with a fraud, right? Most cases start with a legitimate, regular workplace injury, legit. But then during the course of the, of the, of the workers' compensation claim going, the claimant either begins malingering or starts concealing things. And so the fraud um, occurs after the fact, right? I always use the example of like when Greg was a little kid and I was homesick from school. Uh, and being sick from school in my house was like the best thing ever because my mom would let you lay in your bed all day and she would wheel in this like little tiny TV we had. And so you could lay in bed all day and I would watch like Ricky Lake and the Maury Povich show and all this junk TV all day. It was just so great. And then at the end of the first day, like, you know, you're feeling a little better and like your throat's less scratchy. And, you know, your mom would come home from work and she'd say, hey, Greg, are you ready to go to school tomorrow? And you go, I don't know, mom. I'm really bad. I feel really bad. You know, so you just start, you know, you start stretching it out. You start stretching out. And that's really most of the workers' compensation fraud we see. We really see someone who, you know, they are recovering. They are getting better, but they're keeping it both from their doctor and from their employer because they're trying to stretch this out. Like they're enjoying the benefit. They, you know, after a couple of weeks, they got acclimated to being home and sitting on the couch and drinking beer and watching Judge Judy all day. And it feels pretty good. And like, why go back to work? I'm doing all right. So, you know, they just, it just starts to stretch. And that's really the more typical fraud that we see where it's, it's really after the actual loss. You know, maybe there is a single traumatic specific loss, but then it turns into uh, this, this exaggeration. So that's what we see. Um, okay, Dennis asked the question. Greg, on a restitution case, have you ever gotten more than $25 or $50 a week in restitution? Can we force a full immediate recovery within the workers' comp form, or do you have to sue and execute on the judgment? Yet, yeah, no, the answer is no. I've never gotten uh, a workers' compensation judge to say, uh, this fraud is $48,000, pay it back right now. Um, they'll order the restitution, order it paid back generally out of the future award, if there is any, uh, and then you, but you do have to go into civil court and say, okay, but we're at 48,000, so we want that now, right? And that's where you'll go and actually collect the money. So, you know, getting the actual restitution uh, is something that, you know, a, a workers' compensation law judge simply can't order them to open up their bank accounts and turn the money over. You do have to go into a civil court. Now, is that a difficult procedure? The answer is no. And the reason it's really not that difficult is because most claimants, when we've done this, they don't even oppose it, right? Because their attorney is not saying, well, 
I'm not getting paid to do this, right? There's no contingent fee for defending them for a fraud. They're already not getting paid in the workers' comp case because they've been deemed a fraud. And so there's really, every time we've done it, essentially, we've had um, a, a situation where there isn't really even opposition uh, into our uh, order to show cause as to why they should not pay us back the restitution immediately. So you should be relatively successful in those uh, restitution attempts. So good question, Dennis. All right, uh, I'm scrolling down. I want to see if there's any other questions piling in. And Arlene, Arlene asks, "Hey, Greg, can you get restitution for medical payments?" Yeah, yeah, anything, anything that you're, you know, that's found to have arisen out of the uh, the workers' compensation fraud. Uh, and where the judge orders that discretionary penalty. So yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, Mary asked the question, hey Greg, this doesn't seem logical. Why does the board direct continued lost time wages to be paid when a section 114A issue is on appeal? Yeah, great question. Uh, generally speaking, that means you lost at trial and so you are appealing, uh, the losing that. Um, you know, generally speaking, they can order that, but I would generally tell my client to suspend pending the appeal and just let that ride. Again, that's creating the sort of leverage that we're trying to create towards the settlement. So in my mind, that makes sense to me. Um, but oftentimes when you don't prevail at the trial level on a fraud uh, argument, yeah, the claimant's going to obtain a benefit and that's not going to be stayed automatically. But I mean, that's something that you could do. So uh, that would come down to your appeal tactic, which again, I think that's a fair tactic. That's the only issue on appeal is whether or not they should be paid because you believe that your proofs were objective, clear, and credible and demonstrated the fraud. So uh, in that instance, I would tell my client to suspend. All right, great questions. Uh, great questions, great questions. Oh, Arlene says, Greg, can a finding of 114A apply to awards on other prior or subsequent claims? Yeah, generally no. So you're going to be limited to the credibility finding in this workers' comp claim. And of course, I know you're talking about the professional plaintiff, the one who's got five or six pending workers' comp claims against you, and you find them a fraud in one. Now, I would be taking that fraud finding in the one and taking that as my big red flag that I should be looking for in all the other ones. But in general, no. Um, each case would be judged specifically on its own merits. So unfortunately, getting a fraud finding in one of multiple cases is not going to automatically be a fraud finding in all the others, and you'll have to pursue those all individually. All right, that really is it this time. Okay, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, this was great. I really enjoyed answering your questions. Uh, look for an email from me in the next uh, couple, by the end of this week probably, with a, hey, are you interested in a soup to nuts 101 level uh, beginning adjuster course or beginning risk professional course on New York workers' compensation? Um, and then we'll talk about how we could roll that out and try to get your people up to speed and get to the level that you're at. All right, everybody, I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you next month with our next New York workers' compensation webinar. Bye.